This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. As we predicted some time ago, COVID-19 has led to us seeing more hotly fought unopposed lease renewals under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. To discuss some of the trends we're seeing from those cases, I am delighted to be joined for today's property patter by Laura Bushaway of our real estate disputes team and Ben Faulkner of Wilberforce Chambers. Ben, dealing first with often uh, the most contested aspect of a lease renewal, the rent, are there any themes arising from the court decisions so far? Hi Emma, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I would say there have been a few themes and hot topics of late. Um, the first four of those arise out of the pandemic, which has obviously really disrupted the market. Uh, so first, most obviously, rents have taken a hit. We all know that. It's easy to generalise, as I'm sure those listening to this podcast will know. Uh, office or retail space in central London would have been hit much harder than retail parks some distance away from major cities, for example, or warehouse space. Um, the cases coming out of the courts at the moment have generally accepted this drop in rents. You have experts on opposing sides just accepting 20% cut, etc. Um, but it's by no means obvious how long the reductions are going to last. Now, secondly, the courts have quite often had to deal with the absence of uh, evidence. We're used to having a decent selection of comparables to present before the judge. But particularly in the early days of the pandemic, transactions were at very low levels and evidence of post-pandemic rents could be hard to come by. So instead, the courts were having to grapple with lower quality evidence or the absence of evidence. And so we might have had to look to similar towns for evidence of what COVID discounts might be, or we might have had to um, think about vacancy rates more carefully to see what that can show. Um, so it's been a slightly more tricky evidential process than um, pre-pandemic. Thirdly, we are seeing shorter and shorter and shorter lease terms and breaks with a view to giving tenants increased flexibility in what is obviously an uncertain market. And fourthly, there's a hot topic that we'll be coming on to, um, which is pandemic clauses. So that's the kind of bucket of um, issues that I'm seeing really coming out of the pandemic. There are also some other uh, legal hot topics flying around. So the rent-free fit-out legal debate is um, a big one, and we can come back to that. Um, and I've also had um, a decision recently about fixed rental increases and rent review clauses. We might not have time for that today, uh, but I've done a video on my LinkedIn touching on that. So please do take a look at that if, if you want a bit more uh, detail. Yeah, that's a great video. I've, I have uh, looked at that and, and I do recommend it to listeners. Um, it's a, an interesting case. Um, and, and I think, you know, rent obviously is always the big, you know, big thorny issue, isn't it? Um, but interestingly, we're also, of course, the pandemic throws up some very interesting interim rent decisions. You know, it's one of those things often interim rent doesn't even get thought about, but we're seeing a lot more thinking about and arguing about that. Um Laura, what are your thoughts on that takeaways from the decisions on interim rent? 
Well, I think um, interim's a bit of a difficult one because the date from which it's payable is going to vary from case to case. And this is, of course, because interim rent is payable from the earliest date that could have been specified in the Section 25 notice or Section 26 request for a new tenancy. So in one recent case, um, the interim rent was payable from 2016 because there'd been a preliminary issue about um, some some other matters and the interim rent was fixed at a figure somewhere between the current rent in the existing lease and the reduced rent in the new lease but in another case the interim rent was set at the same figure as the passing rent in the new lease um, so a lot's going to depend on the period of the interim rent and obviously the valuation um, as a result of that and I'd probably echo Ben's uh, point that sort of a general statement that interim rent seems to be being determined at a figure which is lower than the current rent but more than the rent in the uh, new lease is somewhat of an oversimplification and of course the picture will vary considerably upon um, across different asset classes. Yes absolutely I mean we're always saying it depends on the circumstances but I mean it really does depend on the circumstances and, and your evidence doesn't it and um, I should say to listeners that obviously we will put a list of the cases as we do usually when we record these podcasts um, with, with the link for, to the podcast we'll put a list of these cases so that people if they want to read more can do so. Um, and what about rent-free periods? Again, another area where uh, there's a bit of argument going on. Ben, how are the courts dealing with those when they're looking at the new rent for the new lease? Oh, rent-free periods have always been a headache. <laughs> I mean, we thought we knew where we were. We thought we knew where we were because we had, um, apart from one reasonably old case going the other way, we thought we had... Um, a bunch of county court decisions all going the same way. Unfortunately, they're not authoritative, so they don't bind other county court decisions. We thought they were going one way. And then recently, um, a case I was involved in has gone the other way. And so now we have another inconsistent picture, meaning that it's all up to um, up, up in the air and all to play for. And I've just dived in there. Perhaps what I might just do is remind everybody what we're talking about here with this rent-free point. I'm sure a lot of um, people will be very familiar with it, but in essence, um, often a comparable, um, which is used to ascertain the appropriate rent per square foot for the subject premises that we're valuing, will have a rent-free period. Fine. Now, in 1954 at renewals, the courts typically order day one rents. So they can't or don't, it's a question about whether it's can't or don't, but they don't order a rent-free period. Now, in such a case, therefore, the comparable with the rent-free needs to be adjusted to take the headline rent and reduce it to what's often called a net effective rent to take into account the rent-free period. That's done by spreading the rent-free period, or amortizing it over the term of the lease. So far, so good. We know, we all know where we are with that. Suppose there's a headline rent of £100,000 um, a year for a term of 10 years with a rent-free period of 12 months. The net effective day one rent will be £90,000 because you are spreading that rent-free. Okay. Now, what the issue here concerns is how much of that 12 months rent-free period should be spread. Because in the retail market, it is common for tenants to be granted three months of rent-free to account for the period of time it takes them to fit the premises out. So of that 12-month rent-free period, it can be said that only nine months of that is pure incentive because the first three months reflects a period when the tenant can't trade from the premises. 
In a 1954 Act renewal, normally, though, the, the tenant that is renewing won't actually carry out a new bit out, so they'll be able to trade from day one. And there is a raging debate here and an inconsistent response from the courts. Option one, should only nine months of that rent fee period in your comparable be amortised to get to your net effective rent to reflect the reality that the tenant will be trading from day one at the subject premises? Or option two, should uh, the whole of the 12 months rent free be spread to get to your net effective rent? Because that is what would be agreed in the open market between a hypothetical willing tenant and a hypothetical willing landlord. And that's what section 34 is about. Now, this is quite a complex legal issue about the construction of section 34. And as I've said, there's no binding authority on it. So that each judge is in fact open to do whatever he or she wants and to disagree with whoever has said anything about it before, which is obviously not an ideal situation for people actually wanting certainty in a legal system. Now, just on this, valuers often can get a little wrong-footed because they are used to doing rent reviews pursuant to rent review clauses in leases. And those clauses typically expressly provide that the first three months of rent free are to be ignored, but there's no such provision in section 34. Um, so my best advice for dealing with this is, if you're a valuer, don't comment on the correct approach. It's a legal issue for the lawyers and for the judge. So instead, provide your valuation on alternative bases. One, um, taking into account this three months rent free or the other one discounting it. And if you're a lawyer, well, it's all to play for and there's plenty of room for argument. So um, uh, roll up your sleeves and um, uh, get stuck in. Have a fight. <laughs> mm. Yes, <Yeah>. please. <laughs> Always good. Um, and that's really good practical advice, you know, from the from the surveyor's perspective, you know, when they're looking at preparing their reports, as you say, you know, don't get involved with the legal arguments. Um, yeah, just stick to advising on the options, as it were. Um, and, uh, of course, one of the other hot topics at the moment are these pandemic provisions. Um, gosh, it's crazy, isn't it, to think, you know, two years ago, whatever, that wasn't even a phrase. Now it's the very much the trend. Um, Laura, can you explain to our listeners, uh, I, I doubt many of them will have escaped it, but um, what a pandemic clause is, um, and perhaps more importantly, what sorts of issues we've been seeing reaching the courts about those clauses? Uh, yes, absolutely. So pandemic clauses and leases can take various forms, but since the COVID-19 pandemic, landlords and tenants have obviously been considering how to provide for future pandemics and leases. And typically, uh, pandemic clauses will contain a suspension or reduction in rent and service charges um, sometimes if the premises cannot be used due to lockdowns as a result of a future pandemic. Um, so many leases drafted before COVID-19 um, don't contain sort of pandemic clauses. They, they do contain rent suspension clauses, but those clauses are usually triggered by damage to the property itself or destruction by an assured risk. And the High Court in the recent case of Bank of New York Mellon reviewed um, sort of a rent suspension clause in that sort of format and held that as the pandemic hadn't caused any physical damage to the premises, the clauses uh, were not engaged. And it also 
rejected a claim for an implied term to apply the rents assert provisions in COVID-19 circumstances, um, particularly where leases had been professionally drafted. So, of course, there's been a lot of um, discussion about putting pandemic clauses um, into new leases, and there have been a couple of recent decisions uh, dealing with these clauses. The first of these was um, in March this year and concerned WH Smith, and in that case, the parties had actually agreed that the new lease would contain a pandemic clause and the question really was around the trigger um, for when that clause would operate and the court decided that the rent suspension clause would be activated by the closure of non-essential retailers and upon operation the tenant would be required to pay 50% of the rent and all of the service charges um, and account for government support received. Um, interestingly, um, the judge in that case said that pandemic clauses had been priced into the market by suggesting that they were the norm. Um, and I think that probably can be um, debated. Um, and there's been another recent case of um, concerning Poundland um, in a different county court in April. Um, and Poundland were looking to include a pandemic clause in the new lease so that the annual rent and service service charge payable would be reduced by 50% during any use prevention measure imposed by the government, essentially a lockdown, um, as a result of a pandemic. And the tenant also sought a clause, interestingly, that it would be required to um, that it would not be required, sorry, to comply with any requirements imposed by an insurer during lockdown. However, the, the court rejected the pandemic clauses um, because they didn't consider it would be fair and reasonable to impose a rent reduction where the tenant was going to have access to reliefs or schemes provided by the government. Um, and on the insurance point, they agreed with the landlord that there wasn't really any justification for the tenant not to comply with insurer's requirements, although they did say, interestingly, that the situation might have been different um, if failing to comply with those requirements was actually a breach of any legislation. But this is all kind of hypothetical because it's in relation to a future pandemic. Um, and obviously, it's always quite difficult to um, determine what you might be trying to prepare for um, in terms of the drafting. Um, and these are two decisions of the county court. So there's currently no sort of binding authority on pandemic clauses. Whether a court is likely to order a pandemic clause to be included in a new lease on renewal is likely to be a matter of each case turning on its own facts, including, of course, the particular drafting of the pandemic clause itself. And um, so I think we'll have to wait and see where this goes. Yeah, and I've been looking at, you know, the drafting of pandemic clauses and actually even the drafting of heads of terms about the pandemic clauses. Um, and, uh, you know, wow, there is a lot of stuff to think about. <laughs> it's uh, it's hard work, actually. It's hard work. It's those moments when you um, uh, certainly have respect for your transactional colleagues and uh, slightly hear oh. a sigh of relief that you're not actually negotiating the detail of these things. My gosh, yes, they are a headache, especially when you start getting essential retailers involved and you're trying to work out what the particular trigger is going to be for your pandemic clause. And when you're thinking about, well, what is your pandemic clause covering? Is it just rent? Is it 50% of the rent or the whole of the rent? Is it going to be keep open covenants? Is it going to be repairing covenants? What have you? Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. real and, headache. And how many times are you going to allow it? What total period? You know, all these things mm. you've got to think about. Oh, goodness. 
Um, so yeah, as moments like that, I'm very glad I'm not a transactional real estate lawyer. As, as Laura, as you just said, you know, in the WH Smith case, the parties had already agreed to include um, pandemic clause, whereas in the Poundland case, of course, the court rejected the tenant's request um, along those lines. I, I think what's interesting to me is thinking about in the future, to what extent will pandemic clauses become the norm in new leases? I and mean, as we were just saying, it's, it's really hard work at the moment, working out everything you should cover in these clauses in such early days in negotiating these new clauses. But actually, is this, is this just going to become like any other lease clause that just becomes standard, do you think? Um, I think there are, there are probably two aspects to the question. The first is, what are parties going to be doing freely negotiating between themselves? And then the second is, in the context of a 1954 Act renewal, where you have a lease that doesn't, a current lease that doesn't have a pandemic clause, will the courts be imposing them? I mean, as to the first, I think we just need to watch this space. I mean, from what I am hearing, I am not at all convinced that Poundland really does reflect what's going on in the market. I'm hearing that pandemic clauses are really being normalised, but I'm also seeing a lot of cases where there are recent whether you call them post-pandemic or during pandemic or whatever, comparables, which don't have pandemic clauses, often because they've, they've just been agreed in a bit of a hurry, or you've got unrepresented tenants who haven't really been thinking about it or whatever. So it's quite hard at the moment to spot a particular pattern from what I can see, but I'm sure that many people listening to this podcast will be a bit more tapped into that sort of thing than me and may, may, may already have their views as to the direction that the market's moving. When you're talking about what the courts are going to do, well, standing back, I can see that pandemic clauses could be quite attractive to the courts as a matter of fairness and reasonableness, which is what underpins the renewals process under the Act. Um, all of the loss at the moment associated with COVID has been placed on tenants. Uh, the current cases, watch this space to see whether there are any appeals or whatever, say that they're liable for rent in full. We've got various bits of government action being taken, whether that's government support, whether we've got this ring fencing um, and arbitration suggestion that's been coming up, watch this space. But for now, all of the burden falls on the tenants, subject to government support. And meanwhile, landlords are entitled to all of the rent just as before. And a 50% pandemic clause would seek to share some of that pain which you can, you can see that that would be attractive. Now, the difficulty on a lease renewal is that the legal test, test um, often called the OMA test, that the courts will be applying, is one which um, requires the court to have a really good reason to depart from the existing lease terms. To incorporate a pandemic clause, although there might be some legal arguments because if it's just associated with rent, then you might be able to get it into the separate rent provisions of the Act, which might lower the burden. So it's all open for argument, as you say, at the moment. Um, and um, we will have to see whether there are more Poundland cases and whether they go the other way. I think that's a really interesting point about the fact that many leases don't have those clauses in them at present um, so um, whether it's slightly more of an uphill struggle to, to to get those clauses put into a new lease because of the specific mechanics of the um, 1954 act um, so I think that's a really interesting point. 
I think it's very interesting. I mean, one of the things that came up, I think, in, in one of the arrears cases was, you know, the fact that tenants were trying to argue that the whole world's changed. And um, one of the judges was pointing out, we have had these issues. You know, we've had SARS, we've had Ebola. It's not as if this type of thing happening and causing problems is something no one had ever heard of. Um, I mean, we don't even have to go as far back as the Spanish flu, but obviously, you know, these things have happened before. So yeah, it will be really interesting actually, the Ome, um, the Ome argument, no doubt about it. Um, and duration, uh, you know, again, always actually a bit of a, a, a thorny one, um, often argued, um, the length of the new lease, uh, you know, can be a real issue between landlords and tenants. Um, and I'm guessing particularly going forward because tenants are likely to want even more flexibility in new leases, whereas, of course, landlords uh, will usually prefer certainty and a longer term. How are the courts striking a balance between those interests on the duration of the new lease at the moment? I mean, you're right. It's an absolutely critical issue at the moment. Tenants, um, as I said earlier, are seeking shorter and shorter and shorter terms and breaks but of course landlords typically don't want that they want the certainty of longer terms particularly if they are borrowing against the reversion um, or they're going to sell their reversion because typically it will make a difference to um, uh, value that although there might be expert evidence in any particular case about that I mean I'm finding that the courts are taking the concerns of tenants in this really uncertain market very seriously and generally ordering shorter terms and breaks, but it is a case-by-case case, um, approach and you can't really ever tell. And it's not helped by the fact that the legal approach to this issue is quite an open textured one. I mean, taking the principles in stages, what the courts chiefly have to do is strike a balance between the interests of the landlord and the tenant. Uh, and as I say, those interests are typically opposed and the courts have to take into account all of the circumstances. So actually trying to advise on what the outcome is likely to be is very difficult because it's just so open textured. Now, usually the courts will inquire as to the particular tenant's business need for a short lease. It always used to be the case that the courts would say, well, are, are you planning on moving? In the next 12 months therefore we will give you a short lease if you can prove that um, and equally they might say to a landlord well look if you're not planning on selling this within the next three years well it doesn't matter if you have a um, short lease because it won't make a difference to you etc the courts can also have regard to what is available in the market so look at the terms of the comparables um, but that's not generally regarded as a major factor it is just one of the factors to be taken into account but what i'm actually seeing is the courts are paying attention to those shortening terms in the market and giving tenants flexibility by short terms that said i recently successfully saw off an attempt by a tenant to get a short uh, term for warehousing space which is a different sort of market and we fought that purely on the basis that the tenant said that it wanted to relocate its warehousing space within the next couple of years and they couldn't make out their case and there we go there wasn't the same sort of need for general need for flexibility or reference to comparables there so um, I'm sorry to say it's still quite hard to advise on these matters and you've really got to drill down into the facts 
Um, but I'm, I think courts are generally being sympathetic towards tenant. No change there then. Um, yeah, you're right. It is. It's always so hard to advise on those circumstances. I mean, not least because very often when you're being asked the question, um, you haven't seen the other side's evidence. You know, they're telling you they want this, whatever. But as you say, often it's quite late on before you actually get to see the, you know, the, the documents which tell you <laughs> how how good that evidence is going to be in support of that case. So it's a really tricky one. And um, finally, Laura, are there any terms we've seen in the cases which uh, landlords or tenants have been looking to include in new leases? So, uh, any other areas of dispute? So other terms I think can be quite specific to the particular landlord, um, tenant or property. Um, but interestingly, um, in the Poundland case, the tenant sought to introduce a clause into the new lease as a result of the minimum energy efficiency standards or MEES as they're known as. And these apply to new commercial leases at the moment, but from the 1st of April 2023, they'll also apply to existing commercial leases. So it's something uh, that the market's starting to think about. Um, and there are separate requirements in relation to residential properties. The proposed clause that the tenant was looking to include in the new lease required the landlord to meet the costs of any works required um, to bring the property up to um, any energy efficiency standards. And the court permitted the Mies clause proposed by the tenant, even though the landlord argued that there was a standard clause in the new lease dealing already with compliance with statutory obligations, um, and that covered the position, but the court um, let the tenant include the new uh, clause in the new lease because it thought that it added clarity. So um, that's quite an interesting uh, point. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that affects the market. Um, uh, well, thank you very much both for that really helpful outline of the court's approach so far. Uh, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of disputes between landlords and tenants over the terms of new business leases and listeners can obviously keep up to date via our website at charleswesselspeeches.com and also at wilberforce.co.uk uh, as well as of course via all of our various LinkedIn feeds and Twitter. Um, so thank you very much uh, to Ben and Laura for joining me today. And in the meantime, we hope everyone is staying well. And thank you for joining us. This is a Charles Russell Speechleys podcast.